Go ahead and open up to Romans 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. So far we've covered humanism and that being the religion of fallen man. And last week we talked about socialism being the political choice of fallen man. And tonight we're talking about sexuality being the sacraments of fallen man. And then as the Lord sees fit, we're going to get into some other things too. Next week with regard to education, we want to talk about the drug war. We want to talk about a whole lot of stuff related to justice in our society. So that'll come um, later on as we go. So Romans chapter 1, we will pick it up in verse 26, where John left off, and I will read through the end of the chapter. Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, these are the words of God. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we give thanks tonight because as your word says, we delight in your law. So our thankfulness and gratitude stems from the fact that you have given us your son and you have given us your statutes. Both of these acts of grace are worthy of our attention and admiration so I pray that your spirit would help us do just that. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So without a doubt, the humanist vision is a comprehensive faith for all of life. The humanist vision is a comprehensive faith for all of life. Whether we're talking about Sartre's claim that man simply exists and then he shapes his own reality, um, or even Marx's vision of dialectical materialism in the world and class warfare and all that stuff. Um, whether, whoever we're talking about, these men and others like them believed in a full-orbed faith for all of life. So as Protagoras had said way back in the 5th century BC, he said that men, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Um, and later, well, because the humanist starts with man and because he believes that man is truly the standard through which we view everything else in the world, um, he is forced to provide answers for life solely in terms of himself. 
Um, when Plato came along and interpreted what Protagoras had said about man being the measure of all things, he took it to mean that there is no such thing as absolute truth, and that truth is what you make it. Does that sound familiar? Spend five minutes on a college campus, that's what you'll run into. The same ideas of Protagoras and Plato himself. So what is clear right now is that Western civilization is undergoing a revolution on a colossal scale. This revolution has innumerable layers to it. Its origin is wide and varied. But at the core is a revolution of law and order. And this is because the religious convictions of Westerners have changed. Now, as Dr. Rushduni has taught us, any change in society will have an outward change in law, and underneath that is a change of religious conviction. So the gods of the ancient past are resurfacing here and now, and this is due to the fact that paganism is now the new religion of the West. The whole experiment with modernism and post-enlightenment thinking of man being able to rationalize himself out of his own problems and misery has failed. So now you have postmoderns who are circularly thinking, well, because I can think something to be true, therefore it's true. So we're seeing failed presuppositions day in and day out, and all of it is rooted in paganism, this rediscovering of man. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. So <clears throat> paganism is, while it's usually sort of a shorthand way of Christians who can describe the heathen person, well, they're a pagan. We sort of like, well, they're a heathen. They're not a Christian. That, that's a good and fine definition. But actually, its origins, in its origins, it comes from something completely different. The Latin word paganus means a country dweller or a, village, uh, a villager in the countryside. So in its original meaning, it was used to denote someone who lived in a rural setting. But it also meant that somebody in the rural setting who believed in folklore and myth out there in the rural setting. You know, all the, ideas of, and all the ideas were discussed in the city, but the pagans, they were the ones out in the outlier lands, right? And they were the ones that believed in sort of this folklore stuff. So the meaning of then really has to do with someone who worships the earth or self as divine. That's what a pagan is. Someone who worships the earth or themselves as divine. Dr. Peter Jones calls it oneism, meaning that there's no distinction between the creator and the creation, per Romans 1. We just read that earlier. So instead of twoism, which is the biblical Christianity, the worldview, right, which sees a difference between the creator and the created, paganism basically rejects this binary existence and it collapses everything into one. That's why we call it oneism. So when I say that Westernism, Western uh, culture, if you will, or Western, Westerners, period, um, have adopted the religion of paganism, I'm simply saying that the Christian worldview has been completely rejected and instead replaced by a view of the world centered completely on man and the material. That's what's adopted. Man is the center of it all and the material. Now, as we saw last with Karl Marx, um, materialism or naturalism sees man as simply being matter in motion, and as a result, the only thing we have is what be, what's before us, what's before our eyes. So we are inexplicably living here on a rock floating in space, and 
all that matters is that nothing matters because your job is to make your own existence, right? And worship everything material as divine because divinity, after all, is within us. That is the spirit of paganism. So as has been customary of this series thus far, I've tried to highlight certain intellectual personalities behind much of the humanist movement, and today will be no different. Regarding the New Age movement, you've heard of that, it's still a thing, the Now Age movement, Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, is considered its founder. Maybe you've heard his name, maybe you haven't. Carl Jung, he was a, this, he, um, the Swiss psychiatrist, he was born in, on July 26, 1875, and Carl Jung is the one who coined the term, terms introvert and extrovert. So if you've ever used those terms, you can thank Carl Jung. If you've ever used the Myers-Briggs personality type system, you are no doubt using Jung's theories. So Jung saw himself as a mastermind of a new humanism. That's what he, that's what he thought. He lived during a time of excitement because much of the world, um, much of the work that was being done was done in the field of psychoanalysis. While heavily influenced by um, Indian spirituality, he visited India once and was impressed with that, Jung's psychologizing of religion spilled over into philosophy and anthropology, sociology, and even archaeology as well. His, his work, uh, his work um, drew the attention of someone you should know, Sigmund Freud. Freud was actually 19 years older than Carl. The work of Freud and Jung brought to the Western world a new field of discipline, one which gave scientific analysis to human behavior. Why do you behave the way you do? Um, thereby, of course, providing ostensible answers to mankind's troubles. What are the problems in your life? So we take the psychoanalysis of Jung and go to work. Now these two giants, Freud and Jung, um, they were not without differences of opinion, however. Jung preferred to use psychology in conjunction with spirituality, while Freud, on the other hand, was adamantly against religion, believing it to be nothing more than illusions of desperate people. Jung's messianic complex, that's not an exaggeration, he thought himself to be a savior in a lot of ways, his messianic complex led him down the path of paranormal phenomena, and, of course, most assuredly leading him into demonism and demonic experiences. Carl Jung's father was a Lutheran minister, interestingly enough, so he was exposed to Christianity at a young age. And we might be better to state that Carl was exposed to a terrible version of Christianity. For his father, it was just nothing but formalism. His maternal grandparents were occultists, and one author actually documents the fact that Carl's mother was a medium who spent periods, lots of times, quote, enthralled by the spirits that visited her at night, end quote. Young attended seances with his mother and no doubt dabbled in this form of necromancy several times over. So this eventually led Young to reject Jesus and he, in one of his famous quotes is, he said that Jesus never became quite real for me. And thus he started this downward spiral into paganism. For Jung, the only way to heal oneself is by realizing that divinity is inside of all of us. It's there. 
pagan myth has to be, must be brought into man's mind and man's conscience. And, and this is where all of this is going, especially when we talk about human sexuality. The key for the humanist vision in the mind of Jung is the elimination of all opposites. So, whether, so while, when you relativize good and evil, you know, collapsing them into a mere figment of one's imagination, you can then be free to journey on towards this inward healing of self. So any inner contradictions that you feel, any discomforts that you feel, or troubled ideas, they can be eliminated. And when you rid the world of this binary existence, it's only natural then that male and female become one. In fact, Christopher Roman, who would later become a transgender model named Carmen Carrera, said this, quote, I am Adam, I am Eve, I am me, end quote. So we'll talk more about androgyny later. Jung's psychoanalysis was fueled by pagan spirituality, and because of the presuppositions that were attached to it, it inexorably led him to believe that society could transcend, quote, type and sex. Without a doubt, Jung's work contributed heavily to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Even when he died in 1961, and thus, of course, he couldn't see the terrible fruit of his paganism. Now, there are some, even within Christian circles, who see Carl Jung as the first Christian counselor, which is entirely problematic. While atheistic humanists dismissed him then and dismiss him now, citing that he was far too religious for them. So what is clear, however, is that for Carl Jung, nothing matters, he said, nothing matters but the completion of self. Nothing matters but the completion of self. This is the same language we hear from Dr. Phil. It's the same language we hear from Oprah. When an individual throws off the demands of a holy God, he or she, we're you know, showing our presuppositions there, he or she, and that's it, those are your options, they can now fulfill their personal desires through science-based psychological maturity. So when we reach this individuation, that's what Jung called it, individuation, which is the process of maturing our subconsciousness, we're then liberated and then we're then transformed. I'm hoping you see how this connects. This is all foundational, for, especially in Romans 1. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul paints the picture of fallen man and what fallen man does apart from God. At the core of it all is this exchange, this exchange of the truth about God for the lie of the serpent, and as a result, he worships and serves the creation and not the creator. That's the basic of our worldview. See, as twoists, we believe there's a distinction. There's a, a distinction between the infinitely transcendent holy creator and the finite creation. But the one is pagan will have none of it. He won't submit to God, and therefore he has to create his own warped version of his experience. Look at verse 26. We'll work our way through. He says, for this reason. For what reason? Well, because fallen men would rather believe the lie than believe the creator. He says, God gave them over to degrading past passions or, or dishonoring lusts. And then he explains what those things are. A couple of quick things here. First, three times in this section, Romans 1, three times Paul says that God gave them up to something. And you can see it in your text. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. 
This wrath given to fallen man is all related to physical things, notice, things related to the body. So the body is a forever reminder that while man is on earth, he is not God and he will die. That was the promise from the very beginning, right? You eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Of course, one could go Joseph Stalin's route. Stalin said, death solves all problems. No man, no problems. There's one option. Nihilism, destruction, communism, 60 million people killed. There's that option. Or we go with Paul's option. See, what Paul insists on is that the wrath of God, the wrath of God is the giving over of people to their lusts. That is itself related to the material world. See, pagans cannot understand this, and as a consequence, they are unable to explain why we should pursue health and holiness in our spiritual and physical lives. See, because self-control is gone, humanists and pagans thus must treat their bodies with abuse. Look at verse 24. They dishonor their bodies, right? And that's exactly what all forms of sexuality outside the confines of biblical marriage eventually turn into, especially homosexuality, as explained here, but also every other form of perversion. It becomes this self-inflicted ignominy and degradation, this downward destruction. And Paul says, that bodies are not treated as vessels of holiness, but instead become vessels of lust and impurity. So natural relations, then, are thrown aside, and unnatural fornication takes its place. That's the train of thought here. Paul also says that when these things are twisted and bent sideways, which is all forms of pagan sexuality, they, quote, burn. They burn in their desire toward one another. Notice the word burn in your text there. Ekeo comes from two words. It means out and burn. See, the conclusion that Paul makes is very clear. Homosexuality, bodily mutilation through gender bending, pedophilia, bestiality, ecosexuality, which is apparently a new thing where they, people express themselves in nature. I didn't know that. It's new to me. And everything else besides heterosexual, one male, one female marriage results in the burning out of men and women. They burn out. It becomes this slow erosion of the image of God and this constant disintegration into darkness and rebellion. And this is exactly what he says in verse 27 is the penalty that is due their error. Since the wages of sin is death and, and the sin here is unbridled lust clustering, it follows, therefore, that the future is nothing but death and darkness for this type of behavior. See, what the Apostle Paul makes clear here is that unfaithful covenant breakers and blasphemers who wish to jump on the train to Orgy Town are given over in reprobation to a depraved mind. And as a result, they will do the insanity. They will do the insane. See, it's a catastrophic devolution into failure and impotence. What is considered shameful and depraved is now paraded in our streets under the auspice of tolerance, right, and love. This reversal of God's law order is nothing but an attempt for man to follow the logic of his pagan oneism. You see, we are living in a time of high-handed rebellion, and there's a reason that human sexuality is absolutely at the center of it all. 
Young said that in, in the 1950s that, quote, we are only at the threshold of a new spiritual epoch or age, end quote. He was absolutely correct. Perhaps he didn't realize the extent of how his ideas would manifest themselves, but the man was a dreamer. The man had a vision. See, the vision of Young, and especially his foremost disciple, June Singer, who was, absol- who was at his deathbed when he, when he passed away, was all about the unleashing of the human heart into lust-filled pastures. That's what it is. See, the gate was thrown wide open because in Young's mind, Christianity is oppressive. Christianity closes the gate, and thus it limits the freedom of the individual. See, only when the gate is thrust open can one experience the maturity that he should experience in his life, right? Only when you are free to do as you please can you be whole. So the thinking went. See, no doubt the 1960s brought about a spiritual reawakening. We might call it the, the great awakening of the pagan mind. Buddhist and Hindu thought flooded into the West. The, re- the rediscovering of the ancient gods of Osiris and Baal and other fertility cult gods and goddesses led us into the d- inevitable decline of self-government and humility. Why do you think it's called the pride parade? Why the word pride? Because that's the only antidote to shame. Self-fulfillment. Well, but let me back up. In this whole mindset, in, instead of mortifying one's flesh, is what, what Christian doctrine teaches, the answer in Jungian terms was to open yourself to it. Just open yourself to it. If you have a desire, just go for it. Make yourself happy. You see, self-fulfillment and self-realization was now done from the inside, not the outside, from this outdated book of the Bible, right? And certainly not from the Holy Spirit arresting a man's entire being. See, let me, let me explain this as simple as possible. In Christian theology, sexual restraint out of reverence and love for God and his law word is, the, is a core aspect of our faith. Restraint is a core aspect of our faith. See, in, in Jungian philosophy and psychology, this type of thinking is repressive and it's unhealthy and it's ultimately unhelpful. So in order to bring healing into one's soul and, and thus you eliminate, you know, you illuminate rather the path of, of man's humanistic sanctification, we may call it, you simply have to believe in fantasy, pure fantasy. And you have to do what Alfred Kinsey said to do, openly celebrate and market unlimited sexual expression as a basic human right. That's the mindset of Kinsey and others that have followed in Carl Jung's footsteps. See, there's a reason that whether we're talking about temple prostitution in the Greco-Roman world or, the, or today in the urbanites of San Francisco, we are always going to have a connection between man's religious assumptions and what he does with his body. So that's inescapable. And all of it's rooted in an unwillingness to submit to God. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 1 that, that this thinking does? What are they trying to do? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In his book, Conversations with God, Neil Walsh says that, quote, Hitler went to heaven. His deeds were mistakes, not crimes. The mistakes did no harm to those whose deaths he caused because they were released from their earthly bondage, end quote. 
Now, the only way you can rationalize the Holocaust into being this good thing is, is to adopt pagan thinking. The, the same is done today with the, sac- the other sacrament of human sexuality, that being abortion. You hear things like, well, these babies, maybe you've heard it. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this. Well, these babies will probably just grow up and be poor and unhappy anyway, so it's better this way. This type of thinking is all pagan. It's all pagan in origin. The sacraments of fallen man, unbridled sexual expression, and abortion, those are the two main sacraments, all stem from a refusal to believe the truth about God, but instead adopt the lie. They want to determine good and evil for themselves. In her book, Androgyny, Toward a New Theory of Sexuality, which was published in 1977, June Singer, remember, a disciple of Young, argues that the future of man must be a sexuality rooted in androgyny. Two words, Greek words pulled together, male, female. So in order to fully express oneself and thus bring healing to whatever disorders lie in the conscience of a person, there cannot be a binary existence. It can't happen. There must be a oneist existence. So this conflation, we can also call it monism, is the core doctrine of pagan theology. So to, to, to sum it up, Jungian psychology opened the door for man to pour out his lusts in a way unimaginable. That's what it did. It's a full display of Romans chapter 1. The most, the most visibly, the, well, this, this whole thinking most visibly manifests itself in the sacraments of abortion and sodomy. Both things are viewed as a sacred rite. That's why I call it a sacrament. It's a sacred rite. It's a religious ceremony whereby the humanist gets to fulfill his desire to be one with himself or herself or itself and one with the created order. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do about it? That's the question. We can talk more afterwards, but... What are we supposed to do? Well, we know that we have to preach the law and the gospel. And the church, by and large, is only getting half of that. Well, not even half of it, right? At every turn, in every opportunity, law, gospel, law, gospel. I agree with Machen, who, who once said that the, the thing that we need, the need of the hour, is more preaching of the law. We must understand that the person who expresses herself in this way is still made in the image of God. She is a person that is created by God to reflect him. And she has tried to opt out of that calling by rejecting the law of God. And so she must now hear the law of God so that she will experience the grace of shame. This is why nice Christianity isn't going to do anything in the world not going to do a thing because it will not confront the root issue and that's shame driving in town yesterday to soccer and the starbucks in town here has the rainbow flag and i joked with mary i said i I had no idea they were so that enthralled with a noah's covenant this is fantastic and I thought, there's just, there, there's an arrogance behind this stuff. And you have to be arrogant and prideful enough to suppress the shame that's attached to it. Because it is shameful. All of it's shameful. 
See, because the church has by and large gone the route of antinomianism, the world has thus followed suit. So when Christians forsake the foundations of God's law word in the church, why are we surprised to learn that the world wants to forsake it as well? But we also not, must not just be law preachers, but gospel preachers. We must preach God's commandments and statutes, no doubt. But we must also accompany this pro- proclamation with the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and his current session as the king of kings. So we have to, it's, we must insist that people forsake their lusts and trade them in for the glory of Christ, which is far better. We must insist that paganism is destructive, that it erodes away at, the image, at image bearers. It leads to death and destruction. We must insist that the only way out of this mess that we've created is through repentance and faith. Repentance for abandoning God's law and faith in Christ whose atonement covers those lusts and forgives you. See, the the humanist gospel in Jungian terms is one of self-realization through fantasy and unbridled ambition. The Christian gospel in biblical terms is one of self-forsaken denial of fantasy and the embracing of Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. There is a difference. So whether you like it or not, and kids, this goes for you, you are in a battle. You are in a battle. And our job is to help you take this mantle and go forth in the next generation to fight this nonsense. So we must preach. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you because all good gifts come from your sovereign hand. We acknowledge that you have indeed blessed us and you have have blessed us well. We don't deserve that which you have given us, but we are thankful that in your kindness and in your son, you continue to be a good father to us. Our desire, Lord, is for your son to be acknowledged and worshipped here in our nation. We have polluted our streets and rebelled against your word. We have become a nation of paganism, and that's because your church hates your law and doesn't want to really tell your gospel. We need repentance first, and then we need revival. And we know that that really comes through the regeneration of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that he would be with us and go in front of us so that lives are changed and this filth is put away. We ask this in Christ's holy name, amen.